I'm SP from Better Podcasting, a show dedicated to help make your podcast better. And it is part of the Get a Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other insightful and wonderful geeky shows at gunnageeknetwork.com. This is the official gunnageek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official Gunna Geek Show. I am Steven, and with me, of course, is Chris. Good evening, everyone. We've also got SP. What up? It's a new week. It's a great Monday night to record on Gunna Geek, and we've got a lot of great things to talk to you about, some of which I'm still learning about right now. You know, here's the thing. Right now. Right now, right now, right this right second. Meow. Right now. Can I actually, right now, help meow. you learn something new as well? Because I think we need to learn about the fact that not enough people say, like, okay, here, here's the thing. People go, it's a great night for a podcast. It's Monday. It's a great night to start off the week having some fun. But nobody, nobody says it's a great Monday to be a Monday. No one ever says that. Actually, I work with a guy who lives for Mondays and he's Ooh. serious and I worry about his mental stability. <laughs> yeah, I would do. Mo- Mondays suck, except for this show. Thanks for coming to Geeks.Live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern time to watch us stream the show. I mean, at least we hope it doesn't suck. <laughs> you let us know, listener. Does the show suck? If so, let us know at js at gunnageek.com. Can I just say, by the way, that uh, there are lots of things in this world that suck, like Wink Home Automation. Uh, let's just start it <laughs> off right off here at the bat. Let's take a little shot against Wink there. Pew, 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 pew. If you didn't know this, Wink is a platform that Chris and I used to use. We liked it quite a bit. SP bought a hub because we liked it. And then as soon as he bought the hub, the system died because it hated him. So uh, there's been a whole controversy with with uh, subscription models, and it's been very unstable for a while. And I think today is day six or seven of the outage of most Wink stuff not working. And they put an update. They said that they had found the issue and were applying a fix. But that was like four days ago. So, hey, let's just start off (laughs) by saying, if you're subscribing to Wink, first, you should probably call your credit card company. Uh, Secondly, you should probably not if they do come back. Because seriously, how many... A week without service that you're paying for, uh, read between the lines. Now, so, it was even more fun. I shared this with you guys in our private chat is if you've used Amazon voice services before, there was a wink skill you could apply. So you could tell your Amazon voice services device to turn on lights in a certain room or something like that. Unsolicited, I received an email from Amazon. It was late last week, I think it was, that said something like, hey, we see you've used the uh, wink smart home skill for your Amazon voice services account. We've been made aware of the fact that there's been a degradation of service and things aren't working correctly. So we're going to offer you this. Here's a code for 20 or 25% off (laughs) on one of the new Amazon Echoes because those all have their own hub built into them. So in theory, you could replace your Wink Smart Home Hub with an Amazon Echo device. And I was like, you know, that's actually pretty brilliant because what's Wink going to do? They ain't got any money to sue you or come after you for sending this out to anyone that has used that service. Now, 
The other questionable thing is I had had that service and disabled it six months ago and like oh. removed it from my account. I realized because I was like, I should go check to remove the skill. I'd already removed it when I shut down my wink hub. So I was like, oh, they just sent it to anyone who's ever actually applied that skill. It looks like so there's probably a bunch of people like me also who got the hell out when wink said, we're going to start charging after promising we weren't going to. And we were seeing weird SSL issues and things like that. So we left. And you all might have a promo code for 20 or 25% off <laughs> one of the new Amazon Echo devices. I haven't used it because I don't need it, but I was thinking it was pretty hilarious. I know, by the way, uh, people are speculating about what the reasons are in the chat. We have Ken saying, is the issue that they're out of money? Uh, the update on the 28th was we have identified the issue and are implementing a fix. My question when I saw that is the fix bankruptcy. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the fix is the what was the short selling game stock yeah. issue. That that's what they were doing for their fix. Right? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, but they are they are in a really bad position right now. If you're someone who was subscribed to Wink and paying what was it supposed to be like four ninety nine or ninety nine a month for that service, because of the breakage they have, at least last week when people started talking about this, you couldn't log into your account to cancel your subscription. It was so broken. Like yep. the login page wasn't even working. It's so people were like, people were like, I want out. What do I do? And people were going to call your credit card company and be like, I want to dispute this charge. It's a service that I was getting a recurring payment on and I can't go online to cancel it. So have them shut it down on that end. And it's still that way. I read in, uh, in Reddit today that people are still getting the same canned answer when they respond, which is very convoluted message when you respond saying you want to cancel. So well, um, they also fired most of their help desk staff yeah. months ago, too, because they were running out of money at that point in time. So there's probably like three people there that are just like, oh, my God, what do we do? We're getting bombarded while our two IT guys that we have left are trying to figure out how to fix this system. Yeah. So I don't any- know if it's actually two. Sorry. Go ahead, SP. I think that we have spent way too much time talking about this because if anybody is left dealing with Wink, they're dealing with it on their own risk and they should know better by now. So I think it's kind of a non-news item. Oh, that's why I didn't put it in the news, actually. That's specifically why I put it before we got to the news. All right, let's kick this all off with a thing that I saw today about an iPhone 12 and medical issues. It wasn't just 12. It was anything with the MagSafe. Yeah, it's the MagSafe feature. The thing that I saw was about a Calgary man with an iPhone 12. So that's why I'm mentioning the iPhone 12, because he, he here's the story. There's a Calgary man who's calling out Apple after his iPhone 12 caused interference with a medical implant that he had. The implant, called the Prodigy MRI Implantable Pulse Generator, provides neuromodulation that basically stimulates his spine to help ease chronic pain that he's had since 2003. So the device that he has is usually controlled controlled externally, and there's something that he normally waves over a pocket in his lower abdomen, and then the pulse is sent to his spine. He said that after having his iPhone 12, he felt the shock on two occasions. Now, the medical implant as well has also been activated by his, 
his phone a couple of times. So he said that it hasn't happened with his older model iPhone, but Apple did follow suit after this and publish a notice on the 23rd, actually. So maybe it was before this. But anyways, he, he published a notice on the 23rd saying that, yes, magnets and electromagnetic fields may interfere with medical devices. The notice read, quote, though all iPhone 12 models contain more magnets than prior iPhone models, they're not expected to pose a greater risk of magnetic interference to medical devices, end quote. So they're saying that there's more magnets in it, but somehow causes less magnetic interference. But I wanted to bring it up today because I thought that that was an interesting thing where this is somebody's actual device causing problems with their actual medical uh, product. I don't know. I was going to say medical part, but that doesn't sound right. But it just sounds like a cyborg. But I'll say it anyway as a cyborg. It's their medical part that uh, was caused interference by this iPhone 12. So they got the watch market covered, keeping all your medical conditions in check. But the iPhone 12 will just undo all of those with its interference. I mean, it's the nature of the world we live in now is these are the things we need to start considering potentially as you start looking into ways to better wirelessly charge or wirelessly do things with devices that relies on magnets to hold things in place and electromagnetic fields to do charging and things like that. So the law of unintended consequences we're probably seeing here where some of these devices can, in edge cases, cause issues with medical implants and things like that. Let's be glad it wasn't necessarily a pacemaker or something it was causing to misfire because that could be yeah. more problematic. But I don't say that jokingly because I've been laying in bed before and been tired and then in my half sleep, in my half awake state, dropped my cell phone on my chest and passed out for a little bit just because I was tired, woke up, put my cell phone back on the charger and gone back to sleep. Now, in theory, and they're not saying this is what could happen or did happen if it were able to do interference on a pacemaker also or something like that that would be problematic. So I'm assuming there's probably going to have to be a bit more research on things to figure out how these magnets could be impacting medical implants, come up to some of these edge cases, or at the very least, put additional warnings, much like Apple has, that says, hey, keep these away from medical implants. Because I remember reading those on things growing up, like, hey, if you have a pacemaker or something, you're not allowed to use this product. They might need to start putting disclaimers and things like that on there. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, though, because we've got the MagSafe now. And I think it was uh, Xiaomi was the company, I think, that announced they're going to be putting their wireless charging product out that is basically a box you can put in a room and it can wirelessly charge multiple devices that are in that room without actually you know sitting on the box itself. So we're starting to move towards things that have bigger electromagnetic fields that will use magnets and things like that to hold things in place and yeah, unintended consequences, these medical devices that help make people's lives easier, you might unintend unknowingly interfere with them or cause problems. So research and disclaimers, here we come. As the sole Apple user on this panel right now, I will say that there was a new story from Apple that they gave a warning for their MagSafe devices that could impact other medical devices like a pacemaker. My dad has a pacemaker and he wears his phone in this lanyard type thing, which would be like right over the place where the pacemaker was. This was a concern this week as his old Apple iPhone six plus would not pair with his new Apple watch, which 
the old one died, the one that saved his life life twice, the uh, the face on it cracked, so he needed a new one. They got a six, and because the watch OS was at a point where it needed iOS 14.4 versus 12.5.1, which was available on the iPhone 6 Plus, uh, so he needed a new phone. In reality, what happened is I sent him my old phone, my 8 Plus, which does not have MagSafe on it, and he was able to get everything working with the new watch there. That is not the only device that he has to worry about. There's a couple other things that we've wanted to do that he can't do anymore. First of all, he's a prolific welder, and there's just some welders that he can't use anymore because they might interfere with the pacemaker. Also, magnet fishing, if you've ever heard of it, it's really intense magnets that you throw like 600 pound magnets to 1200 pound magnets that are the size of a hockey puck. Or if you don't know what a hockey puck is, it's like the size of an Amazon dot device. I didn't say her word in there, but you're (laughs) understanding what I'm saying right there. It's about that size. You throw it out into the water with a rope attach and it can attach to something and pull up metal from the bottom of whatever body of water it is. I thought it would be neat until dad said, I can't do it. Pacemaker. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. So eventually I will get magnets for my nephew and he will be able to use them. But because they are so intense, he can't even be around them. He on the off chance that he's passing by like a foot away, these magnets are so intense that he just can't be around them. So with these new phones that have MagSafe in them, he simply can't be around them. I'm not surprised to see this new story that a Canadian was having problems with it. It's not because he was Canadian. It's because it's MagSafe. It's an Apple 12, which has MagSafe in it. And it was a medical device that has magnets that can uh, interfere with. So not surprised at all. Sorry about the long-winded explanation. No, it was good. I mean, I guess the real question is what... What's the final solution here for Apple is it looks like they're pivoting hard into MagSafe as their solution for wireless charging accessories, potentially in part to remove the uh, USB-C or uh, lightning port off the bottom of their devices. We're talking a very small percentage of the population here in which MagSafe would present a problem. What does Apple do? Disclaimer and say, hey, you probably shouldn't get the iPhone 12 if you have one of these implantable medical devices because you're putting your life in your own hand, but we have no alternative device. It'll be interesting. And it's not just Apple that'll have that problem. I'm not trying to throw stones out like, oh, bad Apple. Everyone else is going to have these problems as they start to evolve in a similar way. I don't know what the right solution is. I I don't know what the research says. I I agree. I think it's going to be more than them. And here's the flip side of that, too, is you're right. It's a small percentage Currently, but with medical advances, I won't be surprised within the next 10 years if we don't see an exponential amount of of increase in medical implants because of the rapid development that we've had in the medical field in the last 20 years. So, uh, you know, I I think you're probably going to have more people who's potentially affected by this. I like Kent's comment in the chat room. The case for Android, it won't kill you. Future clickbait article. (laughs) (laughs) Except we know that it's coming, so it's going to be dot, 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 yet. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, and it's especially going to be interesting, like I said, when we start getting to these thoughts of a room-wide wireless charging feature where you're just basically pumping electromagnetic waves out into a room. I mean, I have my own concerns over that in general. I mean, we should be used to it. We have Wi-Fi and all these other wireless signals that are around. But 
when when's the point of saturation that it becomes a problem for that? And we're living, like you said, Steve, in a day and age where implantable medical devices are becoming more and more common. There's a lot of diabetics now, for instance, that have like glucose monitors implanted into them that they're able to Bluetooth connect to their cell phones or devices to get blood sugar readings or to have 24-7 monitoring to see what's going on. Those are great medical enhancements that help people. But when we get to the point where the device that we're banking on to help us, the cell phone in this case, is problematic for the implant, we have to start putting out implant safe ones? I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. All I know is that it'll be really awkward when the medical field catches up with the erectile dysfunction field and that act is accidentally activates. That'll be really weird. Accidentally? Uh, accidentally, yeah. <laughs> we love tech around here. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next <laughs> news thing here and let's talk about Google Stadia. So this is news that just broke today. We've talked about Google Stadia a little bit on the Gonna Geek show. Go back originally, some of the first stuff that was mentioned, we talked about Google as a cloud-based gaming service coming out. We were skeptical as to how well it would do long-term because it was a crowded field. Steven had pre-ordered the Founders Edition of Google Stadia that allows you to get a uh, Chromecast Ultra and a Stadia controller. He then returned it without ever opening it, which then left me the dubious honor of being the person to review Stadia because they gave me a copy for free. No, it's not for review copy or anything like that. They were trying to get people to become Stadia adopters. And it was if you signed up for the trial, you got the hardware for free. Why would you yes, do Steven. that to yourself? You should have just like rolled with it. Let people think that. Say, I was given it for review. because, and, no. and then you say, I do a podcast. And then people make the correlation. It's together. No, because you I, think, I think for purposes of full disclosure, and so people know where we're coming from, if someone gives us something to review, we'll disclose that, obviously. We're not big enough for that to happen very often, but it has happened with some things. If it's something that we've either acquired on our own or gotten as part of a promotion, I think it is our duty to tell you guys who are watching live, hey, here's how we got this. So I mean, that's that where, excuse me, that's where I was coming from on that one. Okay, but fair enough. You make a very fair point. Transparency. That I'm an advocate of transparency. That's all. So let's talk about Stadia. It officially launched in 2019. I reviewed it. Steven chimed in with some thoughts and feelings on it and took some shots, which is strange because Steven is the iPhone hater, not the Google hater normally. But neither here nor there. Stadia has been out for a little over a year now. There had been some rumors that changes were coming to the Google Stadia side of the house. And today, Google issued an official press release that was put out on a variety of the different blogs and, there, and other tech blogs picked it up. Effectively, I want to read two paragraphs to you guys of what came out of that. They said, in 2021, we're expanding our efforts to help game developers and publishers take advantage of our platform technology and deliver games directly to their players. We see an important opportunity to work with partners seeking a gaming solution all built on Stadia's advanced technical infrastructure and platform tools. We believe this is the best path to building Stadia into a long-term, sustainable business that helps grow the industry. Here's where it gets good. Creating best-in-class games from the ground up takes many years and significant investment, and the cost is going up exponentially. Given our focus on building the proven technology of Stadia, as well as deepening our business partnerships, we decide we will not be investing further in bringing exclusive content from our internal development team beyond any near-term planned games. So what does that mean? Google has two game studios they own right now, located in Montreal and Los Angeles. Neither of those studios have released any games yet, although they were slated to be releasing some starting in 2021. They are effectively closing those studios. Sounds like almost immediately they may get some of these 2021 releases out before they shut them down. And what that means is 150 developers 
are pretty much out of a job doing game development. Google has said they're going to try and find these developers new roles within Google. But let's be honest, if you're a game developer and the role Google offers you is, hey, we want you to build features for Gmail, you're probably not going to be there for long. You're going to be trying to find something else in the game development sphere because that's what you're doing. That's what you like. So it's good that Google is trying to transition them to other stuff, but I don't know that there's necessarily other stuff that's really comparable to their skill sets. So we'll have to see what goes on there. They also announced that Jade Raymond, if you're a gamer or interested in the uh, game industry, it's a name that might be familiar. That is the veteran producer who helped build Assassin's Creed for Ubisoft, was at Electronic Arts a few years ago before coming over to Stadia to run the game creation side of the house, is exiting the company immediately. So Suncast is asking in the chat room, so Stadia is dead. Yes and no. It, It seems like this might be the first step towards that potentially happening. They no longer will be making their own games for their platform. So that would be analogous to, say, Nintendo saying, we are no longer going to make our own Nintendo first-party games. Or Microsoft no longer having Xbox Studios pushing out games. Same with Sony and their in-house developers. They're relying primarily on third-party games and bringing them into the Stadia ecosystem. For example, right now, CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077. It's had its issues, but it runs surprisingly stable on Google Stadia. And that's how you got some of those Atari VCS folks talking about, well, we can play Stadia and it's almost perfect. Yeah, it's because they're using, uh, excuse me, they can play Cyberpunk and it's almost perfect because they were using Google Stadia. So I would theorize that this is a nail in the coffin towards Stadia. And I'm not bringing this up to gloat and be like, hey, we called this anything like that. It's a sad thing. There's a bunch of people that are going to be out of a job in the middle of a pandemic when game studios are having trouble as it is because of things with going on with the pandemic. And it seems like Stadia is another step closer to being doomed. We've talked before about the user issues and the fact they haven't gotten a big player base. Some of their features that they were talking about when they first announced the service a year ago haven't really come out. I think we're one step closer to them shutting it down. I think that you deserve some credit for this, Chris, because I believe early on when we talked about this, and and it probably was even around when I dogged on Stadia because I had read all the reviews and sent mine back. I think that you had actually said that you you didn't see this lasting and that you saw them pivoting with the technology. I, I think that you said that early on. I mean, that would be a typical Google move. We've seen them do that with other things before, which is they build a core technology to do something realize what they built it for isn't quite working, and then they bake it into something else. Like we've seen some of the stuff that came out of Google Glass get baked into the Google Lens product, things like that. So it's typical of them is if something's not working to shutter it. Now, the thing that's really kind of interesting is when they first announced Stadia, they made a big point of saying they had long-term commitments for it. And it it's potentially that is the case that they do. Making your own games is not cheap. Putting your own game studio together that's untested, doesn't put anything out, not cheap and that's hard. If they can truly pivot into being a platform where all these other game makers bring their product to it because they can get an optimal experience there and get it out further, that's great. But again, we talked about this before. The cloud gaming market is very crowded between what Amazon's doing with their Luna stuff, Microsoft and their Project X Cloud, Sony having their instance that's baked in to the PlayStation. Heck, Nintendo even getting into the game with some games on Nintendo Switch. Like Control just came out. It's all streaming if you buy it or switch. It streams from a server. So we're seeing these kind of things happen. Google Stadia hasn't found a way to kind of 
differentiate themselves from everyone else. People are like, oh my God, I'm going to play that on Stadia. I think it's awesome that the best cyberpunk experience so far is on Google Stadia. But there's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the rest of the fans and the players that are out there. They just need to find a way to push it harder. And I think the thought was these independent studios having unique games would bring people in. Sure, it's possible if those games were good. Maybe this is an indication that what was coming out of the two Google Studios wasn't very good so far. So they're just cutting bait before they get the black eye of putting out bad games. This is me just theorizing. I don't know this for a fact. None of the tech blogs have reported that. It's just what ifing. It's entirely possible these are awesome games, and Google just made the decision before that. Also, we we honestly don't know what's going to happen on that. But it's kind of a sad thing, and we can say, yeah, we saw this coming. Google's going to Google, just like Suncast is saying in the chat room. We, we should be kind of used to this. I'm curious to see what they do with this a year from now. Have they shuttered the service by then? Or do we get to a point where they've folded this streaming technology into some other product we're not considering yet? I think it could be interesting. All right. How disappointed are you to our big Stadia advocate, SP? I don't know if I'm disappointed or not. I was looking at, you know, his comment, there's 150 developers that could be out of work potentially during a pandemic, which is terrible. However, times like these necessity is the mother of invention sort of thing. So maybe some of those 150 developers go off and create something that's new, exciting, and it's going to take the world by storm because of their opportunities presenting themselves. I mean, assuming uh, there's a lot of that 150 that have families that are just going to go with a safe bet somewhere else if they can find work somewhere else. I know finding a job right now is is difficult because my son just went through it and I am not looking forward to going through it myself if I have to. But I, I think this going away opens up doors for other things. I think that Google has a history of throwing a lot of stuff on the wall and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. I think they're struggling here and I just don't think this is going to stick long term, but it might lead to a Google pivot down the road that is more successful because of cloud gaming down the road. I don't know. And remember, Google did say, or at least it's been reported that Google is going to try and pivot these folks into other positions within the company. So they potentially still have jobs, just not necessarily and what their focus area is. So it's potentially a short-term thing while you're applying to work for other stuff is how I would look at it for these guys. So they're not on their, they're not out on their ass immediately because Google shuttered these studios. It's, hey, we're going to move you into these other Google services. And there's probably some kind of understanding that is, hey, we know this isn't what you want to be doing long-term. Go out there, find what you're going to do or apply for gigs with these other companies. And if you get it, that's great. No hurt feelings go forward, do what you need to do. I, I thought there was, I saw a tweet actually on Twitter that I thought kind of summed up the whole Google Stadia experience we've been talking about for probably two years at this point in time since it was announced. And the credit goes not to me, but to a wood hawker who does the beat em ups YouTube channel. And what he had said is Google hyped up, hyped up Stadia until launch, dropped it with little to no content or support, then literally never mentioned it again. Not even on its one year <laughs> birthday. Even I didn't think they would fumble this so bad. It just seems like it's been fumbled every time they've done something with the tech is really promising. Steven even agreed with me on that. And he's a Stadia hardliner <laughs> on a lot of these things. The tech is really cool. And Google has an implementation of it 
that's really unique and different than what some of the other folks have been doing, like being baked into YouTube, being able to basically give a link out to someone where someone can click on that and play your game starting at that save spot from their unique spot on their Stadia. That's really cool. There's neat things there. It's just every time something comes out, it just seems like it gets screwed up or lost in translation or it's not quite ready yet and they had to get it out to hit a mark. So it's kind of sad for the people that are involved, the people that were really excited for it. And I hope they can find a way to continue going forward with it. It just, I think it's a tough road to hoe right now because there's so much competition and it's really tough to get into the games industry. Like Microsoft did it 20 years ago. And when's the last time you saw someone after that kind of successfully insert themselves into the games industry as a platform and game developer all in one right now? It's really tough and really crowded. Well, all I know is I'm looking forward to reading your posts on Google Plus about you using your Stadia controller with your Google Daydream. Google Buzz. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Google Buzz. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, let's go on to SP's Space News Roundup. What's going on? Round it up, SP. There's been a lot of big stories that have been ongoing, and I just wanted to make sure I did a quick hit on all of them to keep everybody up to date on what's going on, because I know there's a lot of interest in these items. The first of which deals with the SLS Mega Rocket that will power Artemis. And I know Steven's trying to hit and it's just missing right now. We talked about the green fire test that took place that was shut down early. And according to a January 29th statement, NASA will conduct a second critical engine test for the SLS in February after the first attempt ended earlier than planned on January 16th, 2021. A second hot fire test lasting at least four minutes approximately would provide enough data to help show that the core stage is flight ready. Following this test, the team will take about a month to refurbish the rocket's core stage and engines before the core stage is brought to NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, where it will be pieced together with other parts of the SLS rocket. Then once again, this will be part of the Artemis system to take astronauts back to the moon in the future. Boeing is involved with the SLS, and they also are targeting a March 25th launch for the next Starliner test for NASA. CST-100 Starliner is an astronaut taxi, much like the Dragon capsule for SpaceX. And it will undergo a second test flight on March 25th, Boeing officials announced Monday, January 25th. So two months in the future, January 25th, February 25th, March 25th, we all understand how months work. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) A United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket will launch the on-crewed spacecraft from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. I'm sorry, I'm laughing a little bit after which Starliner will attempt to rendezvous and dock with the International Space Station, or ISS. The upcoming mission, dubbed Orbital Flight Test 2, or OFT-2, was not originally part of Boeing's itinerary when the company was developing Starliner for the NASA Commercial Crew Program, but after a series of glitches prevented OFT-1 from reaching the ISS and prompted an early landing in New Mexico, NASA and Boeing decided to redo the on-crewed flight test before launching Starliner with astronauts on board. I think that's a very good idea. Now, if OFT-2 is successful, the first Starliner to fly with astronauts on board could follow as early as June 2021 as part of a mission to the ISS called the Crewed Flight Test, or CFT. And could you explain to me, how did we get to OFT-2? Did that come after one? That did come after one, and one was a failure. (laughs) 
And what might happen after two? I'm not sure if two is not successful. I don't know what's going to happen because I'm not sure NASA would want to continue with it because they would still have Orion and the starship. So I, I don't know. So, but just to be clear, the numbers go one, two, three, just making sure it's the same thing as the no, it's one, three, two. Okay. I, uh, well, I mean, if you talk about SpaceX, they, they don't necessarily go in that order because it goes nine, 10, 11, 15. So talking about SpaceX and their numbering schema, let's let's talk about that right now. Well, all SpaceX stuff starts with a 10 at the front, right? Because it's space 10, right? That's what the X stands for. I, you know what? Maybe. I, I have no idea what went through Elon's mind as he was naming this company. Well, I don't even... Just- Oh, I don't know. Now I'm confused because now I'm thinking of Mac naming convention and they've changed it like three times on me. So I don't know what any of this means. Has Tesla actually used X in any of their car names? There is the Model X. Yes. But but is it the Model X or the Model 10? Model X. Because Elon wanted the vehicle lineup to spell out sexy, basically. Mm, Of course he did. (laughs) S-E-S-3, the X and the Y. It spells out sexy. So I'm sure that at some point in time in the future, we'll have space sexy. Perfect. Well, maybe, okay. maybe we'll have like, I don't know, space XXX or something. Ooh, better buy that domain name now. <laughs> I'm sure somebody already has it. <laughs> so talking about space XXX or maybe just SpaceX, it actually has not one, but two Starship prototypes, both SN9 and SN10 on the pad in Boca Chica at the same time. Oh, I forgot to start this whole segment off with the Boca Chica drinking game. Okay. That's two. Oh, okay. So at Boca Chica, there is both SN9 and SN10 on the pad at the same time. Guys, have you seen a picture of this? No. I think I saw one on Twitter. There was one on Twitter. There's actually quite a few on Twitter because the people that cover this sort of thing took some fantastic photography of it. So yeah, both prototypes are on the launch pad at the same time. It is something out of a sci-fi novel. It's great seeing this. Uh, By the way, SN9 is still awaiting FAA safety approval before its test flight. I actually haven't delved too far into why the FAA has grounded SN9. I'm sure it has something to do with the Boca Chica residents. I, I have no idea for sure, but I'm pretty sure it has something to do with safety. Or maybe it's the fish. I don't know what the FAA cares about. Uh, also, in Boca Chica, the Super Heavy Booster Number 1 is in the high bay being stacked. Now, Super Heavy Booster Number 1 will be the booster that goes below Starship in order to get it up into orbit. It'll have 30 of those rocket engines, those Raptor rocket engines on the bottom. And there was also this great drone photo on Twitter from RGV Aerial Photos of the launch area of the Boca Chica SpaceX complex. Did you guys have a chance to see that? Yes, I, I did, did not see that one. What is really neat about this is it is all encompassing. It's got the original Starhopper there. It's got the tank SN7.2 that they were having tank tests over the past week. It's got <laughs> SN9 and 10 on the pad it's got the tankzilla crane that is helping sn10 on the pad it's got the orbital launch platform that is being constructed right there and you can see how close it really is to that texas 4 highway and then the ocean it is right there it's all right there so 
It needs probably some protection against uh, swells for storms or something like that. It, it's all basic concrete, flat concrete. So it's not a lot of buildings to flood in there, but it's pretty close to the ocean. Yeah, these are cool photos. I looked them up actually after you started mentioning them. And yeah, really neat. Uh, I'll make sure to link them over at gunnageek.com with your news article. And um, I overhead one's cool, but I, I like the two prototypes side by side the best. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then there's others being constructed in the mid bay and everything. There's a lot of activity going on in Boca Chica right now. Moving on from Boca Chica, Chris, how many times is that? Eight. That's so eight shots, guys. Yeah, that's a lot of drinks. So I just wanted to give a few dates coming up in 2021 since we are recording this. This is February 1st, 2021. We actually have a couple coming up really quick. We have the UAE's Martian Orbiter Hope that is scheduled to arrive at Mars on February 9th. China's probe to Mars is going to arrive a day later, February 10th, I believe. And then NASA's probe that has Stephen's helicopter on it that he will not be able to fly arrives February 18th. Now, I don't know if it's actually going to make it to the surface or not. That's all part of the suspense here. But that's just coming up in the next few weeks. And then we also have James Webb scheduled to launch on October 31st, 2021 out of French Guiana. I would not be a betting man to say that we're going to make that date, but maybe, I don't know. But those the, are Hubble, s- the Hubble truthers are going to delay it, aren't they? Yeah, you guys will love this. I actually saw some animation on Twitter today as I was looking all this stuff up, doing research on this. There is a fan base plan to construct a starship, a SpaceX starship, to bring Hubble back home. Oh, wow. What is is it? Hashtag bring Hubble home or something like that? Yeah, I'll have to link up the the Twitter. Yeah, basically it was an animation of or a CAD modeling of the starship that can uh, consume or eat or whatever the Hubble and bring it back home when it's decommissioned. It's all a cover up because as we all know, the James Webb has been just delay after delay. It's basically been a failure before a launch. I think we can say that safely. And so all it's going to be is a big, big ploy to do a little upgrades to the Hubble. And then they're going to be like, oh, the James Webb is up there. But it's actually the Hubble. Hubble truthers know this, that it's actually going to be the Hubble with a couple upgrades. I was really worried about the James Webb a long time ago that we'd send it up and it would have some sort of lens problem like the Hubble did when we originally sent that up. And it's like, there's no way we can get up there and service it. Well, I'm wrong now, because if we will have Orion or Starship by then, they could go up and fix it. So there is hope for James Webb yet. Well, thank you very much for keeping us informed of all of that there, SB. And we look forward to hearing about more delays from SpaceX because there's lots of delays lately from them. Have you guys heard about Elon Musk's uh, comments about the F? He's blaming the FAA hard on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of anger directed towards the FAA space division, space flight division. Maybe he should leave the country. Go somewhere else. I think he's planning on leaving the planet. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, so today I am going to review a 
Sinope Wi-Fi thermostat. This is something that I was sent for review. There's your disclosure. And I want to talk about this because this is something I've mentioned in the past. Those of us like myself who have baseboard heating, we don't have the main options available for us where we just go and we pick up something to uh, to replace our general uh thermostat that goes for our HVAC system. No, we have to replace every single thermostat that is in our house. And as such, you want to know what's available because it's going to be a little bit of money that you want to invest into, or or you're going to be investing a lot of money into this product. And so that's why I like to keep my eyes on what's available when you do have electric baseboard heating. And this product here, like I said, was sent to me by Sinope. But here's the thing. I was actually transferring from a Sinope thermostat that I had previously purchased on my own, which is why I was really intrigued because the thermostat that I was using was one that used a proprietary Wi-Fi signal where I had a hub that then connected to those thermostats and then went out to the internet. But the one that I was sent this one actually goes directly out to the Wi-Fi. So one less device that you have to have around. Today, when I talk about this, I want to talk about some pros and some cons, and then go into three main categories a little more in depth about the installation, options available, and the energy monitoring function, because let's be honest, we all want to save a little bit of energy. Let's kick it all off with the pros. First thing that I want to say is that this thing is visually appealing. It's about the size of a regular digital thermostat that you would have for a baseboard heat. It's not a lot bigger. It's not tiny. It just fits in well. And the other thing with the visual appealingness of it is that the display is black with green and white text. So this gives a little bit of a pop without being too obtrusive. I think that it looks like a good modern digital thermostat, but then has that little extra modernness by having that different colored display. It's not your usual display that you would find on a digital thermostat. Like I said, it's black with white and green text. And this is one of the things that actually surprised me about, about the thermostat was because when I put it up, both my wife and kids did mention right away how good it looked. I'll be honest, when I set this up, I set it up in my kitchen because I was planning on taking some videos of the installation and things like that in case I wanted to do some other videos. And it was going to be a lot easier to set it up in my kitchen and do those. And my intention was to move it to another room once I had done that and used it a little bit. But my wife said that she liked the look of it. So I'm going to leave it there, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It goes well with with all those new uh, uh, appliances that you got, right? It's the same color scheme. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So. So it looks really good. Uh, The display is simple, but it gives you all the information that you really need on the surface, which is, of course, the inside temperature and the set point temperature. But you can make a bit of a change with one of those, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Another pro of this was that there was an easy physical installation process. Again, I'll come back to the installation after but it was a very easy process to do. Nice thing about this uh, Sinope thermostat is that it is HomeKit compatible. Now you're saying to yourself, if you know me, you're saying, Stephen, but you don't really invest in the HomeKit system. Well, 
Again, I'll come back to that in a little bit because I do actually have a use for the HomeKit compatibility. Now, it's not required, however. If you want, you can just use it through their portal, the NeviWeb portal, which is just done through the Wi-Fi itself, but it has the HomeKit capability. There also is energy monitoring viewable for both the individual unit. So if you have multiple devices, you can go in and see how much energy is used for each device, but also overall for your house within that main portal. This can be really helpful if you're keeping an eye on how much energy you're using on your heating as a house. But also if you see a spike, you can kind of go into each device and see which one is using more. There's voice integration or voice assistant integration, I should say, which I think we should all expect at this point with the, uh, the Googles and the Amazon devices. I think we should definitely be expecting that with thermostats. There's also geofencing as well. Another thing that you might be interested in is maybe not right now in COVID era, but when people are leaving a lot more, you might want to have the geofencing available. Does it work with the Apple voice assistant? I don't want to say her name because I know a lot of people have home pods and devices with that on it now, too. It's a good question. In theory, it would under Apple uh, HomeKit because it's HomeKit compatible, okay. right? I, I can't say for sure because I don't have that voice assistant. Sure. But uh, I believe it would being HomeKit compatible. Neat. If you had HomeKit. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing as well I want to put as a pro here is that it physically feels well built. Now, I've only had this installed for a few months, but I have owned several Sanope products that I've purchased. And I have to say, every single one that I own, I actually have one of their switches. They just feel really well built. It doesn't feel like one of those companies coming into the the home automation market that you kind of wonder how long the product's going to last. When I was installing this, I wasn't worried I was going to break it. It felt like if I was to say accidentally drop it and it might be okay. I, you know, I can't say for sure, but like as I was holding it, I wasn't worried about it. And as I use the physical buttons, it doesn't feel gummy or anything like that. It just feels well built. And the other pro that I want to mention is that the product is managed officially through that Nevi web portal, which is Sanope's online portal. But there's access to this portal through both desktop and app. This is a big thing that me of my era struggles with because there's a, a very big split, in my opinion. There's people who are older than me who generally prefer keyboard and mouse for managing things. And then there's people who are younger than me and they generally prefer app, but I'm right in the middle where I want both because there are certain times where I'll just want to go and use the app to set something or configure something. But if, say, I'm going and putting a bunch of scheduling in, I usually want to go and sit down with the keyboard and mouse and just do it from my desktop. So I, I like that there's access to this through both desktop and app. Steven, you mentioned the build quality of the thermostat and that you think it's going to be supported for a while. That is so important. It's something that I've been thinking about with my train system that was put in and the hub that they put in was a Nexia hub. So it's supported and I think it will be supported for a while because there's a lot of train users, at least here in the United States. And I think there's some legs to it. But if I have to buy a 200 to $500 thermostat every three to four years to keep up with OSs and, and hubs and stuff like that. That's a major expense that is 
in addition to an HVAC system. And I know you have baseboard heating, so it's separated and segregated throughout the house. I have central system and it would just still be a pain either way to have to buy new things every couple of years just because they're not supported anymore. So it's interesting you bring that up because like, for instance, Nest Gen 1 devices are still supported, if I recall correctly. And that device is what, 10 years old at this point, probably? So I think we haven't gotten to the point where there's definitive must-have reasons to have to upgrade your smart thermostats and stuff yet, because you can only make them smart to a certain point. There's really not a great reason to upgrade past that, minus like hardware issues or something like that. So knock on wood, we're not at that point where it's like, oh my gosh, I have to get into an upgrade schedule on my smart thermostat. Well, and it remains to be seen, of course, but like I said, I had actually bought their previous generation of their smart thermostats, and they're all from the same portal. And the company, Sanope, came out and said that they will continue to support the legacy devices. And the fact that they are all in the same portal does seem pretty promising to me that that they didn't go and create a whole new portal for their new line. So I think that that's probably a good thing. All right, let's talk about the cons, though. Out of the box, there's some really weird configuration with this uh, thermostat. I mentioned that there's two temperatures that are set on the display. One is the inside temperature and one is potentially the set point temperature. But here's the thing. Out of the box, it's not the inside and the set point. It's the inside and the outside temperature, which I don't know where that's getting that from, of course, because it's being pulled from the internet and that could vary depending on the weather station. So out of the box, you don't have your set point on the display. It's a really questionable, hmm. uh, it's it's a minor thing, but it's a really weird out of the box configuration thing. I immediately changed it to show the inside temperature and the set point temperature because I, I really don't care what it is outside. I just want my house warm and it's supposed to be warming it up for me. So I don't care what it is outside. I mean, I can see the benefit on the outside temperature being on there too, because at a glance, you can just look up like, oh, hell, it's 30 degrees Fahrenheit out there or something like that. Because I think, at least on the Nest thermostat, because it's the only comparison point I have, if you click on it, it brings up a, on the main screen what the exterior temperature is based off of, I think, zip code or geographic location based off of your IP address, basically. So it, I, I sort of see a benefit. It wasn't that long ago that we had to search for the local weather. And <laughs> you, would, you, you would go in... And uh, when you're getting ready in the morning, you'd be listening to the radio or you'd be watching the local morning news and they'd have the weather at a very specific time. And if you were doing something else, like brushing your teeth in the shower, mm -hmm. doing dishes at that time, you would miss the weather. So you wouldn't see what the weather is now today in my house. I have the weather <laughs> on the face of my Amazon smart device. I have it on my smartphone. It is available on my Nexia hub, which controls my train, my HVAC system. It's even on my GD smart scale that I just got. I, as, as I'm standing there every morning, taking my weight, seeing how bad I am, it actually says what the weather is right now and what the weather is going to be throughout the day. So there is so many opportunities to see the weather. I'm not sure I need it as a default display <laughs> yeah. on my thermostat. And we still have weather channel locals on the eights. That's true. That's if you get the weather channel, I don't get the weather <laughs> channel anymore. So I guess I don't get locals on the eights anymore. It's on my smart scale. 
on the scale. What? I mean, I mean, it, it's everywhere, which is helpful. But at the same time, like when it comes to setting your thermostat, I can sort of understand where knowing what the temperature is outside might be beneficial to you. Like I wouldn't want on the default display. Let's put it that way. But here, uh, that he, makes sense he, to me not to do that. Here's the thing is if you're using a smart th- thermostat, hopefully you're not use, using it manually all the time either. So that's why I kind of wonder, true. wondered why it was set up that way. But let's get into some some more uh, cons here, which are a little heavier. The first is that there's no device sharing that I can see in NeviWeb. This means that if I wanted to share my device with someone else, I'd have to share my whole account. I know this sounds like a little minor thing because it's like, well, who do you want to share your house with? But the thing is, we are evolving past a point in technology where where you should have one account for your you and your significant other, if you've got that, or your kids, you should be able to go and have them create account and share it with them. And there are some other devices that are smart thermostats that do account sharing. So I want to mention that because if I did want to have my wife set up with this, I would have to share them all the thermostats with her. Now, we have in our house a lot of thermostats which aren't regularly used or ones that she probably wouldn't even want to control. And that would even be a nice little way that if if I wanted to set her up with it, I could just share the ones that she will use. Then it's a cleaner interface for her anyway. So I wanted to mention that there is no device sharing at this time. That's that's problematic also from another perspective. Let's think of the landlord perspective, which is you own a house and you're going to be renting it out. If you put these smart thermostats in there, I'm not saying put them in there to spy on folks, but it could be that, hey, when your tenants have moved out, it's going to sit empty for like a month or something like that. It'd just be nice to be able for you to have your cell phone to go in, adjust those temperatures to not have your HVAC running as it should be. But then whenever you have a new tenant come in, basically be able to issue them their own account so that they don't have the admin account for the home, for lack of a better term. So from a owner's standpoint, from a rental property, you really don't care if it's up to temperature or down to temperature if you're in air conditioning. What you really care about is if the pipes freeze. So if you're in mm-hmm. northern latitudes and it gets too cold, then you care. Or you need to weather uh, winterize the place or something like that. So I, I'm really not sure that a landlord would care too much because they never are issued the bill for the property. Well, not necessarily when the tenants are there, but if you've got a period where there's not folks there, it'd be nice then to be able tu- to control that. Yeah, they turn everything off in that point. I, I can see where it would be, but um, I know rental markets and way things are rent- rented do vary from location to location, but I would like to see the account sharing. Uh, The next thing that I want to mention as a con is the energy monitoring does leave a lot to be desired. And I will expand on this in a little bit. Uh, Another thing I want to mention, the web interface can be slow in areas. Uh, Some areas are slow on the web that aren't on the app slow. And then some areas on both the app and the web are a little slow to load. For example, on the app, if I'm trying to go into the configuration section of the device. There's no indication that that configuration is still loading. There's two fields that show up right away. And then if I wait a few seconds, then a whole bunch of other fields come and populate there. But there's no indication that it's loading. And the fact that it takes a little bit to load is a little weird. I'd rather see it have the boxes and just say loading because I can understand it's probably going out and back to the thermostat to pull that information. But it's just the first time that I actually got into the configuration here, I, I thought to myself, well, where are these settings that I had read about? Because they weren't loaded 
as soon as I, I opened up the page. So I immediately went back out and started looking elsewhere. And it was only after a few times of searching, I went back to configuration and then let it sit. And that was when the boxes showed up. So this is like, Stephen, when you took the ACT and you were a little bit slower on some of the tests within the ACT than others, is, is that what slowness that you're talking about here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the last con that I want to mention is one that I think when you're doing smart thermostats for a baseboard heating scenario would probably actually be beneficial for a lot. I was asked this question previously on the Gunna Geek show when I did put it out there that I was going to be reviewing this. Is there device grouping where you can device multiple thermostats that are in adjoining rooms together? No, there is not on this one here. So like my living room and kitchen is almost open concept. I would like to have those two thermostats linked. I cannot do it that I can see through the portal um, on the Sinope thermostats. All right, now let's go into some more details where there'll be some pros and cons a little more expanded there. And the first is the installation. The physical installation was really easy. I was two-wire installation like a electric thermostat is. That made it really good from two perspectives. One, pulling out the old one, I didn't have to trace wires. I just took it out, plugged, removed the two wires, put in the two wires, and you didn't need to know about anything. It just works. Once you start to implement the neutral and other um, methods of wiring, then sometimes you have to do the wire tracing. For this, that was not a problem. I was able to just pull it out, install the new one, no problem at all. And then the second thing, because it is only two wiring, there was not cramming extra wires in the box like happens if you're adding a ground or you're adding a neutral. It made it a lot more one-to-one -one replacement than other smart devices that I've installed where you're adding extra wires in there. So there was no problem with fitting that in. As far as the installation goes of the app though, the setup was a little more difficult. The instructions weren't super clear as I walked through it. And the first time that I installed, I or tried to install it, I got a failure. It, it didn't pair. So I ended up resetting the thermostat and going out and, and trying again. And then it worked that second time. But the first time it didn't work for some reason. Now, like I mentioned, I already had uh, Sinope devices. So I already had an account in there. So I can't really speak to the Nevi web setup because it's been about a year and a half since I set up. But I remember it being pretty easy to register. Um, but I was just going in and hitting add device through the account. Now let's talk a little bit about Home Assistant with the installation because I have been dabbling in Home Assistant for the last little bit and it was super easy to set up in Home Assistant because Home Assistant has baked in a HomeKit controller integration. I don't know how it works, but I guess maybe it acts as a HomeKit controller. As soon as I actually uh, went into my devices and got this on, on the network, Home Assistant detected it and said, we've detected this. And all I had to do was go and enter the HomeKit code that was on the thermostat. I actually just looked at it from the box, entered it in, and I was off to the races. Super easy install into Home Assistant using that HomeKit integration. So again, not an Apple guy, but that HomeKit did work for me in that instance. Now, last thing I want to mention about install is the schedule setup. Pretty straightforward. You can set schedule for many different times of days. 
And when you do set it up, you can set it up by day of the week as well and copy from day to day. So like I just went in and I set my weekday in and then I said copy Monday to Friday sort of thing. I checked the boxes so it copied over. Nice. And then I set a different one on the weekend. However, as I mentioned, I was upgrading from one Sinope thermostat to the other. I tried to copy my existing schedule from my old model to my new model. There was no copy between those devices. I can copy between devices of the same model, it appears, but I was unable to copy. So if I was somebody that's like, you know what? I just want to do this and upgrade all my stuff to the modern tech. It looks nicer. Uh, I would have to go and reset up all of my schedules again. I couldn't copy from one from old device to new. But on the flip side, if you did want to go and copy one schedule, the same current, the same type of device, you could. Like I said, in my kitchen and my living room area, if I wanted those to just be on the same schedule, I could just copy from one to the other. So question regarding that is how complex were your schedules? So let's say if you had, when you redid them, how long did it take you? Five minutes to redo your schedule on the new device or something like that? Or was it overly complex and you had to It was It was pretty, pretty easy to do because I only had like four times a day it was changing. Okay. So that wasn't too bad. And then, like I said, with the desktop interface, I just went and used that because I just find it a right. little more comfortable than on my phone. I mean, I think it's a valid concern you have there, but I think you're kind of an edge case at this point in time where you've already got existing stuff and have upgraded. I think their play is probably not necessarily the upgrade path, but trying to get newer folks in there where that's less problematic. Still an issue that should be addressed at some point in time, but that's fair. That That is yeah. fair. I, I probably am. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, as for options available, configurable options on this, I'll just rattle them off here. Uh, the secondary display I mentioned, you can set it to the set point or the outside. Of course, you can go Celsius and Fahrenheit, as you would expect. You can what about go Kelvin. Uh, no Kelvin, I'm sorry. <sighs> Rankin? No Rankin either. Damn. You can also go 12 and 24 hour clock. I know SP is a 24 hour clock guy. Uh, you can go backlight. Is it UTC or is it 24 hour local? Local, always local. Hmm. <laughs> of course, you can set the backlight, whether it's always on or only when you're physically adjusting something. And then it also has an early start option. This one here is a nice feature to have where it will warm up ahead of your schedule so that in theory, it's warm by your schedule. Then you're not having to go, I want, to get, I want it warm by seven, so I should have it come on at 630. And it does learn as well. I love that feature. Nest has something similar because, again, the only playing I can pair off of. So it knows that I get up at 5 a.m. So the thermostat's set by 5 a.m. to have the house warmed up to the temperature I want. So when I get out of bed, I'm not like, oh, God, it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> As a parent, I also like the fact that you can lock the keypad. That's nice to be able to do that. And you can also set min and max set points as well. So like, Let's say that you're worried that your kid will. You want to leave it unlocked, but you were afraid they're going to turn it up too high. You can set a maximum set point as well. I would have killed for that in college. <laughs> when we threw a house party and someone set our mm -hmm. AC to 56 overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up. It's the summer. And I'm like, why am I so cold? You ever see that Tommy Lee Jones movie, uh, Man of the House? You ever see that? I, I think I've yeah. seen it in like syndication. Well, so he's like a U.S. Marshal or something or FBI guy. And he goes in for witness protection or whatever. And it's a bunch of college cheerleaders in Texas. And they refuse to cover themselves properly. You know, I mean, they're college girls, right? 
So uh, he wins the argument by installing an industrial sized air conditioner <laughs> and then turning it down to like zero degrees. So they're all wearing coats and stuff in the house and, <laughs> and he's happy about it. I thought that was an ingenious solution, although it would have cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. But it got the girls to cover up <laughs> movie magic, man. Yeah. Movie magic. And then uh, the other last feature that you've got to be able to configure is the away set temp, which you can go and you can have an away mode for your house, and then it will set all the thermostats to a certain away temperature. Now, I haven't really had a need to set any of these after the initial configuration, but uh, like I said, I like the ability to have a couple of those things like the locked keypad. I also so, want to note that the display, because it can always be on, I do leave it always on. And the fact that it's a black display with just white and sort of green on there, it, it doesn't seem too bright. Like I can see where it's shining to from the bed. Um, just the way our house is designed, I can actually see where that's, uh, the light would be casting onto, and it's not bright at all. So your away settings, that will make use of, say, the app on your phone and the geofencing to basically be able to know, hey, Stephen left this radius, flipped to away, or does it have a sensor in it that can say, hey, we've detected no movement for the last hour, flip automatically to away? Yeah, it, it would be a specific scenario that you're configuring the away mode like the geofencing. Okay, That's how gotcha. It would be. Yeah. Because I know like some of the other smart thermostats out there have a little motion sensor in the front of them. If it hasn't detected motion in a certain period of time, it then will also look at the geofencing and say, oh, they're obviously away, and then flip to away mode. I don't believe this has that, no. Okay. And the last thing I want to mention a little more in depth is the energy monitoring. And this is just because I do think the energy monitoring, just disclosure up front, I think it leaves a lot to be desired. And so I want to explain a little bit about what it does and what it doesn't do. The energy monitoring with the overall history, you can look at the 24-hour period, 7-day period, and 30-day period. And then with the individual device history, you're looking at 24-hour, 30, and 24-month. The real big cons to this is those are the charts you get. Those are the periods that you can look at. And when you look at the charts, you can hover over them. Like if you're on, say, the 30-day view, you can ho hover over the last 30 days and see the details on there, but you can't drill in. They're not very interactive. So you go and like, it would be nice to be able to say, click on November and go, why was it so high in November and see more details about that? No, that, that isn't an option. Those are the individual charts that you can see. And that's a shame because you're not really always going to be looking day by day at your thermostat, you, you know, it, you do it first with any technology, you're like babying it, but after a while you get used to it. And then you might go and you look a couple weeks later and you go, wow, that was a big spike that I had. I want to go figure out why that was. Let me go and see specific information. So it's very limited in what is available on there. One thing that is nice about it though, is that you can go and you can input your electricity uh, kilowatt hour cost so that you can actually see on the report not only the kilowatt hours used, but you can see how much it costs you for this specific thing that you're hovering over. So I like that. Uh, where I am, I unfortunately, my my electricity is split tier. So I just go with the more expensive kilowatt hour so that it's just giving me the higher of the costs. Because let's be honest, I use a lot of electricity just running all these computers. I'm always when are you going to install the Tesla solar panels on your <laughs> roof? Uh, when you provide them. 
Yeah, that that's not gonna happen. <laughs> you need the power wall first, though. Otherwise, that's the solar true. panels are kind of useless. True. So overall, with this, I do think it's a good product. I think that it looks good. It's a decent price point. It works well. Uh, like I said, personally, I ended up buying the previous version of the Sinope after some research. Um, so I, I might be a little skewed because of that because I'd already done my research. But I think that the they they really need to focus a little bit now on the portal and make it a little more interactive because it it fits things well physically and functionally, but I think as a smart device, it leaves a lot to be desired as far as what you can or how you interact with that. I mentioned it before I had reviewed, I was sent last year, the Mesa thermostat. I think compared, if you look at the two portals and you compare the two, it's the Mesa does do a better job as far as what is in the portal, as far as interactivity goes. But I do have to say, I think that I prefer the look of the Sinope thermostats because it fits in a little bit better. It seems more like a regular thermostat. And, you know, it's cool if you have a big shiny thermostat at first, but then you kind of like, well, I kind of just want it to blend in and not be a focal point in the room. And that's what I like about this is, is it pops in the right spot. It's easy to read in the right spot, but it overall looks like a regular digital thermostat. So it does blend in. I am going to leave it in my kitchen as the thermostat in there. It works mostly with the system that I, I've already got in place. Like I said, that copying thing is the only sort of asterisk in there. But it's working and it's doing everything my previous generation did, plus a little bit more, like I said, the built-in HomeKit integration. So I'm going to leave it in there and uh, continue to see what it's about. And if there's anything else that comes up, I'll report back about that. But that's my review of that Wi-Fi thermostat. And if you have any questions about it, I would love to uh, tell you or hopefully answer those for you. So please get in touch with us. If you want to come by the Discord server to gunageek.com slash Discord, you can ask them over there as well. Do either of you have any other questions? So dummy it down for me. Thumbs up or thumbs down? I say thumbs up. I say okay. thumbs up. Two thumbs up? I will give it one and uh, and uh, a partial thumbs up because again i think the the interface is a little it is behind the curve from where it could be but that's something they can improve because that's yeah. all software exactly. so it's just a matter of them rolling out updates and things like that and i assume they probably have developers behind the scenes that are working on upgrades to that and may in fact be eliciting feedback from users like yourself who would know i mean i yeah. would assume so you did this entire review talking about heating. How does it deal with cooling? It's for it's for a baseboard heater, SP. <laughs> you know what I could do? I could go and I could put a fan on a smart switch and that would have nothing to do with the Sinope thermostat. Ah, mm. <laughs> oh, the problems of not having AC. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for checking out another episode of the Gunna Geek Show. Before we go, I want to remind everybody, uh, there's a lot of great podcasts over on the Gunna Geek Network, including the other ones that these two gentlemen do. Chris, you do all things good, good and nerdy. SP, you do Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. So I hope that you check out those podcasts as well. Subscribe to them because they got better co-hosts on those than me. I'm I'm the the one that drags down their podcast endeavors. I I don't I 
that's kind of tough because I think you're better than Willie. And, you know, that's that's saying a lot. Willie's my bell buddy. That. You're not going to get me to say anything bad about Willie. He's my bell buddy. I mean, it was close, but I, I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's slightly better than Willie. Uh, Chris, anything that you would like to plug or promote or comment on? Uh, don't forget, uh, we've plugged it a couple times, but remember, reminder, excuse me, we do have a Discord. Go to geek.com slash Discord. You can find all of the podcast channels there. Or just come chat with us about things like news stories that drop today, be it the Google Stadia news or the fact that Marvel just signed Ryan Coogler to a five-year TV deal on Disney+. Plus. There's all sorts of stuff we've got going on over on the Discord. Go to geek.com slash Discord. SP? We are square in the middle of WandaVision. If you haven't seen it yet, get your Disney Plus subscription and watch it. It's four episodes in, and it is phenomenal. And you can get those episodes at goodygeek.com and if you're someone who bailed on wandavision boy you picked a bad time to bail on wandavision before this week (laughs) i I gotta say credit where credit's due i am so glad they didn't put that style of episode as the premiere i like that they ran three full episodes with confusion before they gave clarification and wandavision's basically a horror show is what i've come to realize well there is a horror component of it, yeah. yes. Yeah. And if you want to know what we're talking about, go watch WandaVision and then download the next three episodes of Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, for episode 364 of the official Gunna Geek show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, please come to gunnageek.com slash discord. I'm SP saying, hope you have a great week. We'll talk more space stuff next week. And I'm Chris Farrell saying Stadia for life. Hey, look, for it's a year. Retro, retro tech Chris has. Bye. Still supported. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.